In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will abide forever. You may be seated. As, as we've seen from uh, time to time, several times now in the Gospel of Luke, as he's working through the narrative, he's throwing out certain phrases that are, are connecting certain portions of it. And this one is no exception. He begins by telling us that something is happening in the meantime. Um, now it's been a couple of weeks. We took two weeks on Psalm 32, so probably a good idea to remind you of the meantime was referring back to what? Well, if you look back to the end of 11, um, another section of Jesus' teaching, uh, ends with a report that the Pharisees are now pressing to get him to say something, something for which they can fault him. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of that attack, in the midst of that pressing him to say something that they can find to accuse him of, the people, apparently, are still enthusiastic about Jesus' ministry, as Luke takes pains to emphasize, and maybe even to overemphasize. He says, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. We see a picture of the, the crowd massing and pressing together and even stepping on one another's feet. Now, during that, Luke tells us that he began to say to his disciples first. Now, this uh, section of teaching goes at least to the end of this chapter 12. And there's this feature of it where it looks like it's kind of bouncing back and forth from time to time between what he's saying to his disciples and what he's saying to the crowd or what he's saying to his disciples so that the crowd will hear it. I mean, it's not just confusing to the reader. If you look toward the end at verse 41 of 12, it gets confusing to the disciples themselves to where Peter finally has to ask, who are you talking? Is this parable for us? Is this, is this for everyone else? Um, so it's unclear even to the original audience what's going on here. Um, and I think what Luke is trying to emphasize here is 
Again, so many times as we're listening to what Jesus says to those around him, Luke is calling us to remember that what Jesus is saying to them, he's saying to us as well. This is a call, a reminder for us to listen carefully to the words of Christ as if is true. They're being spoken to us as well. So listen. But back to the context. Again, this huge crowd. Good sign, right? Looks like a good reception still for Christ's ministry. Things are headed in a, a good direction maybe. And, and maybe, maybe we've misunderstood some of the things that Jesus has been saying about the suffering that awaited him and disciples. Bigger context reminder. Remember from 951, they've been marching toward Jerusalem where Jesus has been telling them, this is where the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and killed and the third day he will rise from the dead. And where earlier he had said to the disciples that they too would be brought into this suffering along with him. So maybe, maybe that's changed in the ears of the hearers. Maybe, maybe we misunderstood what Jesus is saying because it really still looks like everything's going pretty well. They've got the crowd. But, as Jesus has done in the past, contrasting with that good sign of this great crowd is this ominous warning. As he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So what's leaven? What does Jesus mean here? Well, in its most concrete reference, um, leaven is yeast mixed with bread and it produces this gas that permeates the entire lump of dough and then inflates that lump of dough. Um, How is the picture of leaven used in Scripture? Well, it's actually used fairly variously. Um, Sometimes it's very clearly pointing to something that's bad, like corruption or sin in the Levitical law and then in the New Testament. Sometimes Jesus uses the picture of leaven for something good as he represents the kingdom and the way the kingdom spreads in the world. So what's the use here? What are we to think of the leaven being discussed here. Well, it's a leaven that we're supposed to beware. So this puts us in the negative category. And Jesus says, which is helpful in, in Luke, we don't have this in other gospels sometimes where it talks about this. Luke identifies, Jesus identify the leaven specifically as hypocrisy. Now, again, here's a two-week jump back, right? Because this was the last thing that Tyler was talking about in the section previously. What is Hypocrisy. Well, um, we saw how in one sense hypocrisy is um, saying one thing, but doing another, doing something that's incompatible with what we're saying. Or, as often pops up in the accusation of Jesus against the Pharisees, it's even doing something, pretending that it's for one motive, when really you're doing it for another motive. Um, Jesus exposes the Pharisees for praying and giving and doing good works with the appearance that they're doing these things because they love God and to please God. But as Jesus sees beneath the surface, he recognizes that they're really doing it to feed their own personal pride and also to receive the applause of those who see them doing those things. Well, what, what would this look like in a modern context? Today, maybe we see this in in folks who are seeking public office, and they're seeking public office, pretending to do so in order to to help the people. Um, But really, in their intention, in their heart, they're seeking those positions to enrich themselves or to increase their personal power. But what about this connection between leaven and hypocrisy? How do these things 
go together. Well, we might compare hypocrisy to leaven, first of all, because it makes a loaf look more substantial than it really is, right? You start with the same amount of dough, you add the yeast to it. It doesn't increase the amount of dough, but it increases its size and its apparent substance without actually changing the weight and the mass of this. But there's another comparison that we can make between leaven and hypocrisy as well. Hypocrisy is like leaven because it's hidden at first. You don't see it, but it doesn't remain hidden. As Jesus says in verse 2, hypocrisy is like leaven in that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Jesus reminds us here that what men are on the inside will eventually work its way out to the outside. That's how hypocrisy works. So what of this warning then? I suppose, especially given the background of what's just happened with the Pharisees, it might at this point be possible to take this warning as a warning against those who would harm you by their hypocrisy. Watch out for people who are hypocrites, in other words. Um, And this truly is something of which we ought to beware. I mean, as it is, it's ultimately the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that's going to bring about Jesus' death. Jesus tells us in, in the course of his teaching also that we are supposed to examine the fruits of those who are professing faithfulness to see whether their profession is real. But the warning here seems to be directed not toward warning us against people being hypocritical toward us. It seems to be centered more on warning us against the temptation of practicing hypocrisy ourselves. Um, The applicability of this warning is made explicit to the disciples in verse 3. And he says, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So this is a warning for the disciples. Consequently, it's a warning for us as well to watch out for the practice of our own hypocrisy. But also notice in verse 3 that there's a new development. There's something additional with hypocrisy that we haven't seen in the past. Before, we talked about hypocrisy as saying one thing and doing another thing. Or having, saying, uh, having the appearance of one motive, but really truly having another motive. But this saying focuses more on the related practice of saying one thing in one place and saying something incompatible in another place. What do you say when you are in private with your closest friends? And is it the same kinds of things you say when you're in public? And I don't just mean... Are you less formal or more jocular or yet less reserved when you're with familiar company? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, is the substance of what you say in private the same as the substance of what you say in public? Um, Do you pretend to be someone's friend to their face and speak kindly to them when they're present, but speak ill of them when you're with a different group and that person isn't around? Do you say with your mouth that you support one cause when you're with people that also support that cause? And then 
say that you support the other cause when you're with another group of people? Jesus is letting us know that this kind of hypocrisy, a hypocrisy in our speech, this too will work its way to the surface. As Jesus has said, this will be revealed, shouted from the rooftops even. And so this, this should be a warning against our practicing it. Good rule. Say only what you want everyone to know you've said, because the chances are pretty good that one day that's going to be exactly the case. This might happen just in our earthly lives as things that we've let slip in one group get revealed to another. But there's also a more lasting, ultimate sense in which this is true. What we have said in private will be made known to all, as we'll see in just a bit. At this point, probably be good to ask, what, um, what are some things that lead us to behave in this way of saying one thing in one context and another thing in another context? What tempts us to say whatever those around us are saying at the moment? Well, one such cause of hypocrisy like this is, is fear. And I think this is the, the connection between these two sections of the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, we're afraid, right? We're afraid of not being popular or not being liked by the group we're with. And so we talk as though we agree with what they're saying. Or maybe a bit more acutely, we're afraid of having people treat us rudely because of our real opinions. And so we speak contrary to what we really believe or contrary to what we would say if we were with a different group. Fear. Fear tempts us toward hypocrisy. But is that a good excuse? Is fear an adequate excuse for speaking hypocritically in the way Jesus is talking of? Well, Jesus answers that question by speaking to fear in its most ultimate form. In verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Here's um, probably our first clear indication in this section of text that Jesus is moving the discourse into a context of persecution. Um, Again, reflecting what he has said is coming along the way. He's now talking about people who not just aren't rude to you or put you out, but will kill you for what you say and what you confess. No, to answer our earlier question, fear isn't an excuse. Fear isn't a reason to be hypocritical in your speech, not even when what's to be feared is death. And if we shouldn't be moved to hypocrisy even by fear of death, how could it be appropriate for us to be moved there by fear of having someone make fun of us or be rude to us? Nothing not even the threat of death should make us afraid enough to be hypocritical in our speech. But wow, uh, fairly counterintuitive, right? I mean, how, how are we supposed not to fear those who threaten to kill us? Well, perhaps an even more counterintuitive answer. Because that's all they can do. Jesus says, after that, have nothing more they can do. Well, I don't know, but that maybe sounds like enough. I mean, how is this what, how is what Jesus is saying here is supposed to give us the assurance and help us not fear? All they can do is kill you. Well, a couple ways to think about this. First of all, 
Um, think of it this way. The most that anyone can do to you is something that was already going to happen to you anyway. Lewis talks about this in his essay on the fear of the atomic bomb. Did they not know <laughs> that everyone dies? Did you think, he says, that you were going to live forever? Okay, well, even so, then why shouldn't we just say whatever it is that gets us out of the trouble in front of us and it extends our life a little bit longer? Because even if there is no fear in death, Jesus lets us know there is something to fear beyond death. Verse 5, he says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus' statement and Jesus' warning here reveals his perception of a reality that far surpasses the present order of things. We look at what happens at death and we think this is the ultimate thing that can happen to us as far as our senses are concerned. Jesus tells us that there is something worse. There is something more that can happen to man after man dies. And that is eternal judgment. There is somebody who can do more than kill the body. There is one, and that one is God, who can give what is deserved even after death. And God gives what is truly deserved. And it appears that hypocrisy is one of these things that can place us in this kind of eternal danger. Hypocrisy is often revealed, as I said earlier, in the course of our earthly lives. But even if we escape that revelation, even if we make it through to the end of our lives with nobody around us ever having known what we were really thinking or what we were really saying in another context or what we were really doing even though we were saying something else, even if we escape that, there is no escape from who we truly are. There is no escape, escape from what we truly did and there is no escape from what we truly said in the eyes of God. God pays attention to even the slightest detail. Verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything. But, Jesus is not here speaking of God's knowledge in order to increase the disciples' fear. On the contrary, and something of a surprising turn of the teaching, he's reminding them of this to allay their fear. Fear not, he says, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Oh yeah, well how do we square what just happened? Um, how do we square this instruction not to fear now with what Jesus just said about fearing God? How do these fit? They fit this way. If you are one of Jesus' disciples, that is, if you have put your faith and your trust in Christ, there is only one whom you need to fear, and that is God. And if you are Jesus' disciples, then God cares for you. And because of God's care for you, He values your life more than the lives of many sparrows. And so, you don't even need to fear him. If you are in Christ, don't be afraid. 
You fear God, and so you can fear nothing else, including God himself. Don't let fear drive you to hypocrisy in your speech or hypocrisy of any sort. All that man can do is kill your body. But what kind of situation are we talking about? Specifically in this situation, the the situation in which fear and temptation to hypocrisy might present itself, in which hypocrisy would be so acutely dangerous. Jesus gives the context in verse 8. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men. Talking about the public profession and confession of our faith in Christ during times when it will be painful and it will cost us in order to do so. The particular kind of hypocritical speech upon which Jesus seems to be focused here is what we say or what we don't say or what we refuse to say about him. He's the center of all of this. Again, we have the picture of a situation where there's pressure to identify with or to deny Christ. That crisis is before us. How might we be called to to acknowledge Christ in this sense? Think of the simple direct questions sometimes you get. Maybe as direct as, are you a Christian? Based on something you're wearing or something you're saying or something you're reading. Um, Simple question, what are you doing this Sunday? You don't really want to talk about church because you really don't want to get into that. Or, hey, why is it that you won't come and watch this particular movie or do this particular activity with us? And you don't really want to give them the real reason. Acknowledging Christ in each of those situations would be, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, I go to church on Sundays. Um, I don't go and watch this kind of movie because I've been bought by the blood of Christ. I belong to him. And these are the sorts of things he calls me not to do. Um, all of these questions, these kinds of questions, these are things that call us to acknowledge Christ in our answers. And usually in our context, and explicitly, it, explicitly acknowledging Christ, an answer that does so, might get us an odd look. It might get us maybe even something as severe as a rude joke. But we know, we're mindful, as Peter directs us to be, that our brothers around the world do not have it so easy. We know that around the world there are some circumstances in which a direct answer to the question, are you a Christian, might cost you your job, it might cost you your property, and in some circumstances it might cost you your very life. So, faced with this, again, we know we have the fear of God in the background, but what incentive could we possibly have to acknowledge Christ in circumstances in which that cost is asked of us. We have the very highest incentive. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, listen, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Do you know that feeling? Maybe you guys have had this experience before. That that feeling of someone that you knew back when, as we say, and someone who's now well-liked or widely respected, And being in a context where that person looks across the room and sees you and says, hey, hey, it's you. Um, Maybe you've never had that experience, but you can imagine what it would be like for that person that you admire more than anybody else in the room to look across that crowd and say, hey, it's you. That will not even be worth comparing 
to what it'll be like one day for Christ to acknowledge you in front of all of creation. As Christ looks across God's throne room on the last day in front of all mankind and even all the angelic creation and says, I know you. It's you. Welcome. Christ is here again reminding us. He's telling his hearers that their entire eternal destiny is determined by how they acknowledge or deny him. Your lot in the life after death depends on one thing, and that is the relationship that you have to Christ. But what if we fail? What if we fail to acknowledge him? What if instead we deny him? He says, verse 9, But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. By contrast to that joy and pride and excitement we were imagining early, imagine the horror of the only voice that actually will matter, saying to you, as he records in the Gospels, I never knew you. Now, this perhaps again rightly puts us in fright. Which one of us has gone through our entire lives and acknowledged Christ in the way that we ought to every time we've had the opportunity? Does this mean, does this mean that a single denial of Christ end is the end of our hope? No. Do we have to look at other places in Scripture to help us see that? It helps, but we don't because look at what he says very next, verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Jesus here is not talking about losing your nerve and denying him once or twice or maybe even three times as we have the example of Peter doing right before Christ's crucifixion. Denying Christ is not being slow to believe the gospel even to the point of kicking against the goads as Paul has Jesus tell him. We said in Psalm 32 a couple weeks ago, um, even high-handed sin can be forgiven. Even the sin of failing and denying Christ in a, a particular circumstance. We see that Christ restores those and can restore those and will restore those who repent of having done so. But there is a sin that Jesus mentions here. There is a certain condition in which sin will not be forgiven. As he says, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Passage probably more than any other has been the terror of many through the ages. What is the sin? Have I committed this sin? We hear that question lots of times for people. What is the sin? I think first we look at what it already obviously is not. It's not speaking a word against the Son. That can be forgiven. So it's not what Peter has done. It's not what Paul has done. It's not sinning after you were justified. We saw that last week in Psalm 32. It's not even sinning in a high-handed manner. Even that can be forgiven, David tells us and Paul tells us in Romans. What is it then? Well, we have one help from looking earlier at how it's been used. And previously, it seems to have been the sin of attributing the obvious, evident, clear, convincing 
powerful work of the Holy Spirit and pointing to it and saying, that's Satan. That's the devil doing that. As we saw some of those doing who were witnessing the miracles that Christ was doing in his ministry. Here, it would seem to be this ongoing, knowing, committed refusal to believe. An active, willful working against everything that you have in front of you, against everything that you know to be true in order to maintain your denial of the gospel. Why would somebody do that? Well, sometimes maybe we just want to go on living in the sin that we so much enjoy. And so even though we know in our minds and are convinced in our hearts to some degree that this is true, we push it away because we want to continue living our life of sin. Maybe even in the context in which the disciples will soon find themselves in this context of persecution, Maybe this is where we say, I want my life so badly that I am going to ultimately and finally and permanently in an ongoing way deny the truth of the gospel. So there is a point at which we can send to the point of no return with this. But that's the kind of thing that it would look like. I will tell you that in all my years of having this discussion, I have never met anyone who asked me, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, who I thought even came remotely close to what the scripture is describing here. And I'll say this. If you're worried about having committed the sin, you probably haven't. (laughs) Because the hardness is not there. If you're concerned, if you're fearful, if you're wanting forgiveness... You're not this person who is driving the Spirit away, saying the Holy Spirit is an unholy spirit and turning away from the truth. But this persecution, again, this opportunity, this this place in which we are called to acknowledge Christ, in which we're threatened with death if we don't, Jesus gets even more specific now in verse 11. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... And the terms that he uses there would seem to indicate both the Jewish and the Gentile powers that were in existence at the time. And as we read into volume two of Luke's work, things that Luke will be reporting again and again as having happened to the disciples. And what is it that they're to do in those circumstances? What is it they're to do when they find themselves confronted with the judgment of men who are threatening to kill them? There's a sense in which Jesus repeats again that they're not to fear. He says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. But look here. Jesus is telling them here that they're not only not to fear the men who might harm them. They're also not to fear how they're going to pass this test. They're also not to fear their ability to confess well, how can, they, how can they deal with that? How can they wrestle with the fear that they will fail to acknowledge Christ? That they will get to the point of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and their denial of Him? Jesus says that they can rise above this fear by relying upon the Spirit Himself. He says in verse 12, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is another promise that we see being fulfilled by Christ again and again and again as the apostles go forward in their ministry and in their preaching in the book of Acts where they're clearly and boldly, when faced with death, articulating and proclaiming Christ in all his fullness. God keeps this promise. 
And so, people of God, to bring it to a sum. What are you to do when you're given the choice between acknowledging Christ and hypocritically denying him? Christ teaches us here that you are to acknowledge him and that you're to acknowledge him without fear. You're not to fear what those who hear you may say to you or even do to you, even if they're threatening to take your life. You're to acknowledge Christ out of the fear of God, that fear that enables you to fear nothing, including what God will do. If you fail, you can ask forgiveness. And if you're afraid that you might fail, you can rely upon the Holy Spirit to give you the courage to say what you need to say. And if your confession, if your true confession leads you to suffering, or if your true confession leads you even to death, you can suffer and you can die knowing that Christ will be waiting with the greatest words that we could ever hope to hear. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us pray.